Genesis, the 12th chapter, begins with this simple little introduction to what would become a phenomenal story, the Old Testament. It simply says that, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you so that your name will be great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, Abram went. It's a predictable beginning, but yet it's so strange for how many of us would look at this story. From what we gather from Genesis, the 12th chapter, Abraham is just behaving and minding his own business in his home city in the Ur of the Chaldees, one of the most advanced places in the world at that time. It would appear that he had a fairly comfortable life there and he was successful there. Not only that, but he had grown old there. He was in his 70s at a place in time where many of us would be thinking about retirement and about settling in for that final stretch of life. And then the Lord appears to Abram and says to Abram, Abram, I want you to leave everything that you have ever known. I want you to abandon every relationship that you have in this place. I want you to walk away from the security and from the comforts and from the predictability of your homeland. And I want you to go to a place that I'm going to show you. (laughs) And what's crazy about this story is, is that at least the text that we have, Abram doesn't really question it. He just goes. He just gets up and leaves his entire life behind at 70 years of age. I don't know about you, but I think most of us this morning, if the Lord were to come to us today and they were to say to us, he were to say to us, Jason or whoever, I want you just to to walk away from the life that you have right now. I think for most of us, that would be a real challenge. How how am I going to provide for myself, Lord? What are the security situations in the place that you're calling me, God? How many guarantees do I have this is going to work? What do you mean I'm going to be a great nation, Lord? Because I, I don't even have any children yet. But in Genesis, it simply says that Abram went as the Lord had told him. There's an amazing connection that sometimes is easy for us to forget between gratitude and faithfulness. Abraham is called the father of the faithful. You read through Hebrews 11 chapter. His name is mentioned there. Father Abraham is a song that little kids sing in Sunday school. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years after Abraham's life ceased in this world because of the impact his faith has had not only on his people, but on all people of faith. But what was it that allowed Abram to have that kind of faith? If you know the story of Abram, and and, and we don't have time this morning to share all those things, but if you know the story of Abram, you recognize that he's a flawed person. Last week, we, we looked at a man, 
a contemporary of Abram, a man by the name of Job, that God himself describes as the greatest man in all the East. In fact, he was such a morally upright guy that when Satan comes and has a conversation with God, God said, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. He is blameless and upright in all that he says and does. God never says that about Abram. In fact, as we read through the story of Abram in the following chapters, you you see a man that's flawed like me and flawed like you, a man that struggles with belief, sometimes is concerned for his own safety and is less than honest in his dealings. And yet, he is the example of faithfulness for all of us who would follow. And there's something about the life of Abram that I think this morning is important for us to focus on. In this series of sermons, we've been taking a look at kind of the big stories of the Old Testament that lead us to the place where Jesus comes into the world. We've looked at Adam and Eve and the perfection they had in the garden, and yet the consequence of sin, a consequence that would not just visit their own lives, but would destroy the lives of their their own family members, and ultimately would just corrupt the world so completely that God would have to say to Noah, Noah... I'm going to destroy everything, but I will save you and humanity through your family. We've taken a look at at a godly man who dealt with enormous suffering and how he kind of carried through that, even though there was every reason for him to quit. And this morning, we're going to take a look at the faith of a simple man called from the Ur of the Chaldees to become a nomadic shepherd in the land that God would someday give his descendants. And what allowed Abram, later to be known as Abraham, to be able to follow God in such an extraordinary mission. There's a lot of things about his life that are important, but we're going to take a look at one particular part of his life, and that is that Abram believed that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. And secondly, Abram was able to worship God even when what God had promised had not yet been delivered. One of the most extraordinary things that we see in the life of Abram is that Abram was, was able, to, able to thank God in advance for things that God had promised that he was going to do. And this morning, we are also called to be grateful when nothing has happened yet. I'm really pretty good at being grateful when I have something that I've been given, right? I think most of us are like that. I've always struggled with being a little impatient in my life. And uh, in my, in my family lore, there's this, this moment uh, when I was a kid that always gets revisited if I go visit my aunts and uncles. My, my uncle had just got this video camera. Some of you who are old like me, you guys remember when they first got those like camcorders, right? Where you stuck the video cassette in there, made you look like you were on the evening news because the thing was so huge that you had to put it on your shoulder, right? So my uncle had gotten this and he was kind of infatuated with his new technology, right? He's got the tripod and he's got this thing. So for whatever reason, I don't know why, um, my uncle decided that he, we needed, he needed to film the, uh, the Thanksgiving dinner at my family's house. And, and so uh, this was a big deal. In, in the Quarter family, in the Yearns family, it was my, my mom's maiden name, um, Thanksgiving was the holiday. They, they love that, and I have such fond memories of that holiday. And so <laughs> here, here the table has been spread, you know, like 5,000 man hours have been put into a meal that will eat, be eaten in like 15 minutes, right? And uh, my uncle comes in with this contraption, and my mom, and my mom was a mess. She had, everything had to be just so. My mom's like, you know, where are you going to put this tripod, Doug? Right? 
We don't have mushroom. So he said, I know. He goes and he puts it on top of the refrigerator. So here we are. We've all sat together and we lived in a pretty small house. So the refrigerator was near the kitchen. My Uncle Doug has this camera all propped up, shooting in to the table. We all take our places. I have been working for at least four weeks before this without any pay to get ready for this Thanksgiving meal. I'm starving. And so we sit down to eat and my dad, my dad begins to, begins to bless the meal. And I don't know if you guys did it like this. This is a cruel way to do things for kids, but we would, we would pass food and everyone would get their plates filled, but no one would eat. And then we would all close our eyes and bow our, our heads and my dad would pray for the abundance which the Lord had provided, so on and so forth and so on and so forth. And so here I am looking down at a plate full of mashed potatoes I love mashed potatoes, all right? I'm a Yankee, right? You guys are like, out of here. It's rice, Jason. Not a, I know if Zeke were here this morning, Zeke would be like, hallelujah, right? I love mashed potatoes, and I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking to myself, no one's going to notice. My dad is in the middle of the, third, of the third main division in his prayer. So I just reach down quickly, grab my spoon, because I had good manners, scoop up the whole edge of the mashed potatoes, shove it in my mouth, and put the spoon back. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. We had dinner. It wasn't until like a month or so later that my uncle came over and said, hey, got something to show you, Diana. That ain't fair. I'd forgotten we had the cotton-picking camcorder on top of the refrigerator. Oh, my goodness. And my family loves to pick I like to be thankful for things that are in my mouth. I wanted to make sure those mashed potatoes were good before I said amen to my dad's prayer. But Abraham had the ability to thank God and be grateful for what God was going to do without having seen it yet. Gratitude teaches us to enjoy what's happening in the present so often we, we can become people that are just looking for the future, looking for the future and say, someday I'll be happy. I'll be happy when I get this. I'll be happy when this life event happens in my life. And it tells us that Abram was thankful even though he hadn't yet received it. In fact, the New Testament writers write a lot about Abraham. In Colossians, the, the second chapter, verse number six, Paul writes, he says, that you have received Christ as, as Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. And I want you to listen to this because this really informs how we look at Thanksgiving and how Abram saw Thanksgiving. He said, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving great thing about Abram was he was a person that just abounded in thanksgiving. If we jump back into Genesis, the 12th chapter, we find that the rest of the story of that introductory paragraph for Abram's life goes like this. Abraham was 70, or Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his son's brother, his brother's son, there we go, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Hanan or Haran, excuse me, and they set off for the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Adam, Abram passed through the land to a place called Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Chaldeans were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord. And from there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. 
And there he built an altar to the Lord. And he called upon the name of the Lord. And over and over again, and throughout this, this text in Genesis, every time, every time Abram would go someplace, he would build an altar to the Lord there. He was, he was building altars in the north. He was building altars in the south. He was building altars in the middle because his life was defined by the gratitude that he had for the God who had called him on this extraordinary mission. And Paul says, I want you as Christ followers to walk as Christ walked. I want you to be rooted. I want you to be built up in him. I want you to be established in faith. And then notice this connection between faith and gratitude as you have been taught abounding in it with thanksgiving. Faith faith grows in an environment of gratitude. And I think maybe one of the reasons why a lot of us struggle to maybe have the kind of faith that we would love to have in this world today is that we are not grateful people. We've kind of lost the art of what it means to be grateful. In this simple verse in Colossians, Paul lays out the three keys to kind of having a successful Christian walk, to be a, to be a genuine believer in Christ, to walk in faith, being rooted and grounded in the walk that Jesus demonstrated for us, for us and to have gratitude, to be thankful. And why is gratitude or thanks, thanksgiving so important? Well, it changes our perception of the world that we're living in in the moment. When we're thankful, we become givers, more than just consumers. When we're thankful, we stop trying to use people for pleasure and recognize that they are blessings and gifts in our lives. When we're thankful, we experience a greater peace and a greater joy in the world because we're able to look and see what God has already provided in the moment in which we are present. When we're thankful, we take our eyes off of ourselves and we begin to look at the one who gave everything to us. When we're thankful, we stop complaining and we start praising. When we're thankful, we look to love and to bless other people as other people have loved and blessed us. You know, it's amazing, but Jesus would thank God even when there wasn't enough. Every time I go to Haiti and I'm with the Haitian Christians, I come back with a mixed sense of awe and respect and a little guilt. Because I'll sit down to a meal that most of us would consider a meal for one person. It would be like a decent-sized plate lunch at a normal restaurant in Crowley. And this is going to feed five, six, seven people. And I know, because I've been there long enough to know, that that this is like a special meal. This is their Thanksgiving meal. They're providing the best that they have for the family. And so I take one spoon of rice and beans and one little tiny chicken leg. And we would think that's not enough to feed a, a, a bird, but they live on that. And yet their prayers of thanksgiving are as real and genuine as any that I've ever prayed. In John, the sixth chapter, there's a moment where Jesus has been teaching all day and and he tells the disciples, hey guys, uh, it's getting late. We need to feed the people, right? And they look around and they're like, okay, Jesus, uh, it's a long ways to town. Uh, what do you mean we're going to feed them? We should just dismiss them now, let them go. They can get their own dinner. And Jesus is like, no, 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 that's not how we're going to do it. So he says, why don't you guys wander around and see if anyone brought anything? And the only person who brought anything was a little kid whose mama 
probably packed, was like my mama, packed him a lunch. You're going to need this, right? And it stuck in there five loaves and two fish into a little bag and sent it with their little boy to go out and to see Jesus that day. And so this little boy is willing to give what he has, but we're looking at a crowd of 5,000 men, maybe 15,000 people. We don't know. This is an enormous crowd. And the disciples show up in the midst of this crowd with five loaves and two fishes, a sack lunch for a little, a little boy. And in verse number eight, Andrew and Simon Peter's brother says, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what is that for so many? Like, what are you going to do with this, Jesus? <laughs> really? We, we, got a, we got a sack lunch. We got school lunch here, Jesus. One, one school lunch, Jesus. And Jesus said to him, have the people sit down. There was much grass in that place. And so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, can you imagine that prayer? Imagine if that was your Thanksgiving dinner. There's a, there's a juice box, a Pop-Tart, and a fruit roll-up on the middle of the table. And Jesus begins to give thanks when there's 5,000 guys to feed. We know there were other people there because this is a kid. This isn't a guy's lunch, it's a kid lunch. Who knows how many people are here? Jesus gives thanks, and when he had given thanks, he distributed it to all those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. Here's a powerful lesson in what Jesus does right here. You know what? Jesus could have, Jesus could have made the miracle happen before prayer, but he didn't. Jesus could have, could have just said, hey, guys, we're going to do this. But no, he stops, and he sets for those people there, and for me, and for all of us here today, a really powerful example that we are to be grateful even when there isn't enough. Abram is grateful for a promise that God has given him, even though there is absolutely zero realization of the great nation status that God said he would someday have. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, the fifth chapter, in verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So gratitude helps us enjoy the present, but we are also called to be grateful in another way. We are called to be grateful when all hope seems lost. At this point, 75 years old, Abram is pretty, pretty, pretty optimistic about the future. I don't know how God's going to do this. It's kind of a strange thing, but it's a great adventure. He seems to be healthy. Sarah seems to be healthy. And yet they go for years in the land and they still have no children. In fact, Paul reminds us in Romans, the fourth chapter, in verse 18, that gratitude brings enough. There wasn't enough, but that gratitude or attitude of gratitude began to bring enough. Notice what it says in verse 18. Paul says, even though there was no reason to hope, this was a hopeless situation. Abram kept hoping believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that is how many descendants you would have. I think that's a really powerful sentence right there where Paul writes and he says, even when there was no reason for hope, Abram kept hoping. Even though, it was, even though there was no reason for, for, for Abraham to expect that anything would change, he expected that it was going to change because God had promised that it would. What makes the story of Abraham, I think, so phenomenal? Maybe why God chose a guy like Abraham over maybe a far better person, moral character than, than say, Job, is that Abraham was flawed like you and me. 
But he had the ability to recognize that God is faithful. And he had, a, had an understanding that even when there was no reason to hope, there was still a reason to hope. Now, Abraham was keenly aware of the doubtful situation. I'm not going to try to tell you this morning that Abraham was just some old senile guy in denial. He knew exactly. He was clearly facing the the facts of the situation. And yet, Scripture tells us that he did this without weakening his faith. In fact, Paul continues on in verse 19 in Romans 4. He said, without weakening his faith, faith, rather, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. About 25 years have passed. God's brought him to the land. He's become a prosperous farmer. He's become a wealthy person. He's become an influential leader. He has no children. The man is 100 years old. His body is as good as dead, as, as, uh, as, as he himself said. And Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Every morning, Abraham would get up and say, God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I know you're going to do it. There's a lot of things in our world today, guys, that I don't know how God's going to do it. There may be situations in your life or in mine where we look at it and we recognize it with, with our abilities, with our, our resources, with our talents, with our efforts. This is a hopeless situation. Hundred-year-old men do not have babies with 90-year-old women. Just doesn't happen. It didn't happen then. It doesn't happen now. God is proving a point for all of us, and that is that if God, God's will is for something to happen, he is not confined by the limitations that life puts on each of us. How many of us in Abraham's Abraham's situation would have held on to the promise? How many of us would have just said, you know what, this is never going to happen and given up on it? The Bible talks about, and a lot of hymns talk about hope being an anchor for our soul. And there's times in life where we absolutely need that anchor. We, we need that tether between the realities of the storms of life that are going on on the surface and the recognition that our faith is based on something more than just hope or a dream, but it's based on a, or based on a, on a conviction that God is able and God is willing and God is faithful to act according to the promises that he's given us. Honestly, in this room this morning, every one of us are living life looking forward to a future that none of us have seen. We're looking forward to a time where we might spend eternity with God and in heaven where everything that's broken in this world might be set right in that world where our physical bodies will be restored and and repaired to what they should have been before sin damaged and destroyed this world. And yet we've not experienced it yet. And yet today around the world, there are Christian brothers and sisters who are meeting together, who are worshiping together, who are praying together, who are sharing their faith as a body of believers amidst great persecution and great risk. And they're doing this because they believe that God is able. That God will deliver on that which he has promised. Christ is that anchor for each of us in this life, in life's stormy world. We are attached through or to him through this great cable that we call faith. It attaches us to the bedrock truth that when God speaks, things happen. That when God says he'll be there, he will be there. 
And there's enormous comfort that is, is ours to be had when we recognize that that anchor is secure and solid and it will hold. God never promised us or anyone else that there won't be any storms. What we are promised is that we are kept secure when we are in him. We see stories throughout the life of Jesus when, when Jesus would be at ease and the others would be terrified. It was because God knew, or Jesus knew, that God had everything in his control and in his hand. Abram believed that, even though there was no reason to believe that. Gratitude allows us to recognize that God is enough. But the third thing gratitude does is gratitude allows us to follow up on, in faith when prayers are answered. The great thing about the story of Abram, as you guys all, or Abraham, as you guys know, is that, is that Abraham's prayers will be answered. And, and you know, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you this morning. Sometimes in my life, I find that, that I don't do a real good job of looking back and seeing the answered prayers that are a part of my life. I try to do better with that, but I, I'm, I'm bad for that. Yesterday, I, I, I left a, a conference in, in Oklahoma City at like 1 o'clock, driving home uh, nine hours or so. It turned out to be a little bit longer because of traffic in, in Dallas um, from Oklahoma City. And, and when, you, when you're driving down the road, you have a lot of time to think. And, and, and you, you stop to think all the things that could go wrong, right? I mean, just in that trip, I said, I'm going to try to think. Uh, I'm going to try to just recognize all the things that could have gone wrong and didn't go wrong. And if you've ever driven through Dallas on the, like, I don't know if it was Christmas shopping yesterday or what, but I mean, everyone's cousin's brother was out and there was road construction and there were people getting angry. And there were a number of occasions where I could have easily gotten hit. I made note of those. Because I just live my life, I kind of roll through things, right? I just kind of blast down the road, act like, you know, I pray, God, keep me safe. I never stop to consider that God is working. I never stop to be thankful for those little moments. Little things sometimes that we don't think. We, we forget something, and then we remember something at just the right moment. Do we stop and say, thank you, Lord? Because that has a powerful effect on how we begin to look at our lives. We begin to recognize, I'm not just rolling through life on my own and my own talents and my own abilities, but I'm in a cooperating effort with the creator of the universe. The New Testament lays out this ideal for prayer that is often hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around. It says that we are to pray without ceasing. We, we try to figure it out, what do you mean, Lord, I've got to walk around all day with my eyes closed and my head bowed and my hands folded? This is not going to be very productive and I'm probably going to trip. No. <laughs> what the Bible means about that is, is that each and every day we are walking in community with our Father. Abraham did not know how God was going to do this, but he believed that God was going to do it and he praised God every day for his goodness, even though he was 100, Sarah was 90, and it looked hopeless. But it wasn't. That's a great part of the story as we end with it this morning. Genesis 21 says, And the Lord kept his word, and he did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. Now, Sarah, I don't know whether it was through excitement, through a little lack of faith, or just because she's like, God, you have a crazy sense of humor. But when God said, you're about to be pregnant, and she's a 90-year-old woman, Sarah laughed, didn't she? I understand it. I think she thought, really? You're going to wait till now, Lord? I don't know. But she became pregnant and she gave birth to, uh, for a son for Abram in his old age, not to mention she was old. This happened at just the time 
or, or just the time God had said it would. And Abram named their son Isaac. Eight days after Isaac was born, Abraham circumcised circumcised him as God had commanded. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. There's a couple things in that text that I want to point out as we wrap up today. First of all, it says this happened at just the time God said it would. Guys, God's plans are not our plans, and God's timeline is not our timeline. I'm that impatient kid, even at 50, 48 years old, almost 50, might as well claim it, right? At 48 years old, I'm still trying to sneak the mashed potatoes from the plate. God, I I want things to happen. Let's get this instant gratification. Let's get this done. And God says, I will do what I'm going to do in the time that I will do it. You know what? If Abraham had had a kid, Sarah had been 30 and Abraham had been 50 or something like that or whatever, or 40, I guess it would have been, there would not have been anything fantastic about that story. But when you're 190, 190, that's a pretty crazy story. And so as we wrap up this morning, I just want to talk with, with, with each of us about how do we do this? How do we, how do we make certain that we are people that are grateful when our prayers are answered. And I think there's just four simple things that every one of us can do. And I want to challenge you guys to maybe write these down if you're filling out your bulletin today or take note of these mentally. Number one, anticipate an answer. Abraham didn't know when, he didn't know how. He had a few false starts, but Abraham anticipated that God was going to answer that prayer. Now, it's not always a yes, because sometimes that's not really what we want or we need. But anticipate that God is going to answer. What happens there is that you begin to look and you begin to see when that answer comes. Some of us aren't real good at following God because we're really not watching for his lead. Hannah's a great example of this in 1 Samuel, the first chapter. She wanted a child. She was barren. She prayed earnestly and, 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 uh, and promised that if God would give her a son, that she would return him to a to the Lord. And Eli comes in and she's so passionately in prayer that Eli thinks she's drunk. And he says, you should quit drinking. And she's like, I'm not drinking. I am just distraught and soul and in spirit. And God communicates through Eli that this time next year, you'll have a son. And I love how Hannah just gets up and leaves and she's joyful and she eats something. She was anticipating that answer. The second thing is that we need to be ready to take action. That when we pray and we ask God to work in our life, we need to be ready to do something about that. In the New Testament, there was a man by the name of Cornelius that was a Roman centurion, and he was praying that God would help him to understand what the next step in his spiritual life was. Cornelius had no idea that God was doing some pretty amazing things behind the scenes because God was changing the culture in a man's heart that, that, that Peter could bring the message of the gospel to a person that had not been born as a Jew. And, and then Peter would show up at his door, and I don't know if you know that story. It's in Acts, the 10th chapter. But, um, but Cornelius is ready, and his household are ready. And, and when Peter arrived, Peter shares with them the gospel and Cornelius and his entire house believed the message and they were baptized into Christ. They were ready to move on the prayer that they had been praying. Thirdly, we need to stop and give thanks. In the moment, not wait until some other time because if you're like me and your brain, you're gonna forget. In that moment, just stop and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you that you protected me from that potential thing 
Thank you for them thousand potential things that I don't see that you protect me from. God, thank you for leading me in that situation. God, thank you for giving me the right words to say to that person in that time of need. In Luke 17, Jesus was passing by a group of Samaritans, guys that weren't really in the in club. They were really kind of despised by their culture, but all 10 of these men were not just, or all 10 of these guys were not just despised because of their ethnic background, but because they were lepers. And Jesus would end up healing these guys. He would tell them, hey, go show yourselves to the priest. And all 10 of these guys take off. And as they go, as is always the case in the Bible, people don't get healed until they make that move. As they're going, their skin becomes clean again. This scourge, this social disease has been lifted from them. And eight of these guys just continue to jet it to the priest because they're going to be back with their families. They're going to have restored relationships. Their health has been repaired. Their death sentence has been lifted at least temporarily. But when two of these men looked down and they saw the sores that had plagued them had been removed from their body, they stopped in their tracks and they returned and they gave thanks. And I always found it poignant what Jesus said when they returned. In verse number 17, Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? No one... No one found to return to praise God except this foreigner. And he said to him, rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Let's be that one, that 10%. Let's be that one person that is willing to stop in the middle of life to return to God and say, thank you for what you've done. Lastly, we need to pray in faith fueled with gratitude. In Acts 12, Herod, Herod, listen to me, Herod, um, maybe Herod too, uh, Herod imprisoned Peter. He was looking for political favors. He had already taken the life of James. It worked out really well for him. So he's like, I'll take Peter's life as well. And as he imprisons Peter, the church is gathering together and they are praying earnestly because the great leader, the one who had the keys to the kingdom, the one who preached the first gospel message in their estimation, in their mindsight, is about to die tomorrow morning. They're having an all-night prayer vigil. In the middle of the night, God shows and sends an angel into the prison. The angel kicks Peter in the ribs. Love this story. I'm condensing it so much, but it's a fantastic story, right? Peter's in there. He's asleep between two guards. Who sleeps the night before you're about to die? Peter and people of faith, right? Peter just had trusted, hey, this is what Jesus did. He slept in a boat that was about to sink. I'm going to sleep in a jail before the day of my death. And the angel, angels must not be real gentle, guys. I would think an angel would touch him and say, Peter, right? But no, it says that he, that he punched him or he shook him roughly, kicked him in the side, and it says, Peter, wake up. And when he wakes up, the chains fall from him, and, and he and the angel just walk out, gates open, kind of like automatic doors at Walmart, right? When you're with God, guys, no prison, no chain is going to hold back what God wants to accomplish. They walk out into the cool night air, and it wasn't until they get into the cool night air that Peter realized this isn't a dream, this is real life. And so Peter's out here in the middle of Jerusalem. He just got sprung from jail by an angel of the Lord. What am I going to do? And so he goes to where he knew the church would be gathered praying, and he knocks on the door. And the servant girl, Rhoda, comes to the door, and Peter said, hey, it's me, Peter, let me in. Well, Rhoda gets really excited. Ah, 
it's Peter. She runs back into the house, never unlocks the door. Poor Peter's standing out in the street. All right, Rhoda. I don't know if Rhoda was a little ditzy or what, but uh, maybe she was just excited. But the crazy thing is she goes into the house and she says, hey, hey, guys, 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 guess what? Peter's outside. And they're like, no, Rhoda, Peter is not outside. We're praying for Peter to be released from prison, Rhoda. She's not, he's not outside, he's in prison. She's like, no, I'm telling you, he's outside. Well, they all go out, and of course, Peter's there. But isn't that just like us? We pray to God, God, I want you to work in this way. God, I want you to lead in this. God, I want you to restore this, friend, this relationship. And what do we do? When the answer's right in front of us, sometimes we just don't notice We pray with a faith that's fueled with gratitude, recognizing that God is going to do the things that he has promised that he will do. If we cease to be thankful, our children and those around us will assume that what we have previously been so grateful for is no longer important. And I think we all realize this morning that what we are thankful for in Christ is immensely important. So let's do this. I want to give you a challenge this morning as we close our time here together. I want to ask you to be, each and every one of us throughout this week, I want you to take five minutes of your day and I want you to be grateful in those five minutes for how God has worked in your life. I want you to get a notepad, a piece of paper, a napkin. I don't know what you guys are going to write on. I don't care. You can do it on the notes part, part of your phone. That would probably be the best thing to do. And I want you just to take five minutes every day, and I want you to write down the specific things that you are thankful for in that day that God has done for you. I want you to know something. This is going to transform your life. You don't believe me, maybe, but it will. If you're not a person that's already doing this, this is going to change how you look at, your, at the world. It's going to change your perspective of things. Several years ago, they did a pretty large-scale survey of people, and they had them do the same thing that I'm challenging you to do this morning. Just take five minutes a day for one week and write down all the ways that they were blessed. They don't have to be big things, but they do have to be concrete and specific things. Like, I'm thankful for the relationship that I have with Jesus Christ. I am thankful for my family. I'm thankful that my wife got up and made me coffee this morning. I'm thankful that the car started. I, I don't know what it is, but I want you to find, find five things and preferably unique things in that day that you are thankful for. Here's what researchers found. I'm going to tip my hand for you guys this morning. Researchers found this to be true that at the end of one week or one month, rather, those who practice gratitude Even those who stopped it after one week were happier and far less depressed than those who didn't. But then they checked back up on these people six months or three months later, and they were still appreciatively more joyful and content with the life that they had. So at first they were, they were just happier and less depressed, but then they were joyful and content with the world that they were living in. After the six-month mark, they were less anxious and depressed. I don't know how many of you this morning like the idea of being happier. How many of you like the idea of being more joyful or having a greater degree of contentment? How many of you think it would be nice to be less anxious and less depressed? But to me, that sounds like really good things. 
And these people achieved that by simply recognizing the good that God had already brought into their lives. As we close in, in, in with a song this morning, I want you to remember that gratitude teaches us to enjoy the present. Gratitude also brings enough. Even when there's not enough, we recognize that God will make it enough. And gratitude prepares us for the future, for what God is going to do someday. Abraham is called the father of the faithful, but yet Abraham was a man who was marked by gratitude and, war and, and praise to God. He was constantly going to God, even and long before God would accomplish what God had told him he would accomplish. Abraham said, I'm going to praise you for that, even in the darkness of my despair. There is a powerful and real link between gratitude and faithfulness. Gratitude leads us toward faithfulness. And gratitude helps us follow in faith. So this morning, I want to challenge you as we close to be like Daniel. May we offer gratitude to God no matter what we may face, even it be a den of lions. To be gra grateful like Jonah who offered gratitude for God, even for the hard consequences that brought about a good repentance in his life. That we might be grateful like Hannah who, who offered gratitude for God in what he had given in the future and was willing to sacrifice greatly because of what God had done for her. That we might be grateful like Paul and offer gratitude to God, not after, but right in the middle of the storm. There's so many stories of gratitude that we can look at. Like Jesus, may we offer gratitude before we have ever received what he will supply in our needs. May we be grateful like Christ. May we offer to God a sacrifice of our praise when following his lead may even lead us to suffering. This week, as Americans, we stop and we, we give thanks. And my challenge for you is that this week is a week where you stop and actually give thanks. My hope is that this isn't just something you do for a week or for a season, but you make a habit and a lifestyle out of it. We're going to stand together and sing. If you have a need this morning, you know that you can come as we sing together.